2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is what? New creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. This is a great uh, verse that proves that for the Christian, you just don't gradually evolve and gradually get better and better with age, you know. Uh, It's not like you can... uh, Uh, Take a plant and plant it out in a garden somewhere and then watch that bean plant grow like many of us did when we were little kids back in grade school. It's not like that at all. It's totally different. It's a transformation. It's a life-changing experience. It's something that happens supernaturally outside of you and outside of me. You can't affect it by yourself. You can't warm it up, but it has to be done by God himself. And that's what we call salvation. You know, you've heard many terms. You've heard of being born again, right? You've heard of being saved. Uh, you've heard of being um, redeemed. And all these terms have to do with this. But we're going to look at specifically tonight what happens in the life of a Christian when they get saved. There's two main things that happen. The old things have passed away. And then what's the other part? All things have become new. Back in uh, 1776, we remember a story that occurred If you know your history at all, you know that that was the time when the Declaration of Independence was signed. And back at that time, there was only 13 English colonies that were in America that protested the limitations placed on them by the English crown and engaged in a struggle that gave birth to our brand new republic. And at that time, that was an infant nation, but they wrote these words in their documents. They said, these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. And what I'm telling you tonight is the same thing. You as a Christian are free in Jesus Christ. If you feel tonight you're bogged down and uh, overburdened and you're totally depressed and you're discouraged and you're beaten down by the affairs of this life and the circumstances have got you snowed under, there's good news for you tonight. You don't have to be there. Because by God's grace, when He saves you, He changes you. Two things let's take a look at here this evening. First of all, the old ways. In Romans 5 and verse 12, it says, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So the first old way tonight that is passed away is the old way of the death penalty. It's like when a man uh, commits murder, and he goes and he stands before a judge, and the judge passes the sentence on him, and he says, You're condemned to death. Well, for every person that lives in this world, you don't have to sign up for it. You You can't escape it. There is this thing called the death penalty. Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but what? The gift of God is eternal life. So the wages of sin is death. You have a death penalty hanging over you. Those are part of the old ways. And when you talk to someone out there on the street and you're giving them the gospel, man, you've got to make that so clear to them because a lot of folks out there think they're just basically a good Joe. You talk to them in the military, man, they think that they're just, you know, they're okay. they got a good paycheck, Right? They're doing all right. They got a, 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 a cover over them. They got three hots in a cot, and they're good to go and squared away, and you aren't going to offer them too much that they don't already have. But we've got to tell them one thing, and that is, folks, you are dying, and the best that you can do is sinful. <laughs> the best that you can be is nothing but uh, wickedness and unrighteousness and filthy rags. The best that you have to offer God is absolutely zero. That's what these folks got to know. We get, see these people that uh, make a profession of salvation. You know, you have those folks that type, try to just, hey, just pray this quick little prayer and uh, bless God, you'll be saved and you're on your way to heaven and then you'll be in the pearly gates. And inside of two and a half minutes, they led them to the Lord. But what really happened? 
Where did that change take place? Where did they get a hold of the fact that they were sinners? Like this gentleman here that just got saved not too long ago and those others. When they get saved and they get changed, it's a result of the fact that they learned that they were a sinner and they were on their way to hell and they had the death penalty hanging over them. Years ago, I saw this uh, sign. It was in a window. So I copied it. I, I like this. pretty good. It applies to what we're talking about. It says that when the white man discovered this country, the Indians were running it. There were no taxes. There were no debts. And women did all the work. And the white man thought he could improve on that system. Well, you know, it's just like what we do in society today. We try to improve on God's system. But the bottom line is we can't improve on God's system. You can have a nice family, pretty, look, you can dress them up, comb their hair, cut their hair, make them wear long dresses and all that good stuff. But if they're not born again, they're on their way to hell. We dealt with that with a couple of our kids not too long ago. One of them come up to me and says, Dad, uh, I need to be saved. And he, he, he'd got, I guess it was uh, in Sunday school he got saved. And then another one comes in and he says, I said, man, what's going on here? I thought they were born again. I thought they were saved. I said, man, I've, I've done what I could to raise my family and have a good uh, uh, focus on the Lord and have family devotions and all this other stuff. But you know, the point is, they wake up to what life is all about pretty soon. It may be seven. It may be eight. It may be like me when I was 17. It took me quite a while. I'm a slow learner. And I had to realize what the fact was that I was condemned by God himself on my way to hell. We were at the M16 range last night. And those of you who know that in the military, you got the crazy night fire you got to take part of. It. That's really fun. You got to stay up there all night. And they give you slots of time in which you have to qualify at nighttime. You got to shoot those tracer rounds down range. You got the little red flares and flies off in the sunset. It looks like someone's shooting the clouds. But we were there that night, and I was asking God to give me an opportunity to deal with someone about their soul. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I was looking around, trying to find the right person. I said, no, that one won't do. I was getting kind of selective because I know that guy I'd witnessed to and that guy I'd witnessed to. And I kept looking around the whole company. I said, man, I've already witnessed to these guys. But there was one guy I hadn't witnessed to, and his name is Munshi, and he's a Muslim. And we got talking that night, and I said, uh, I called him by his first name. His last name is Akbar. I said, Munshi, I said, uh, what do you know about God? What are you doing about your soul? How do you how do you plan on getting heaven? What does Muhammad have to say? And he didn't mind me talking to him because I've talked to him before about the Muslim thing and his reactions and the military and all that stuff together. And I said, how do you know that you're going to heaven? He didn't have a clue. He says, you know, I know one thing. I said, what's that? He says, I know Muhammad was a great prophet. I said, good, good, good. He was a good prophet. And I said, what do you think about Jesus Christ, though? Because usually once you nail someone down about what their opinion and the view of the Lord Jesus Christ is, you get a pretty good understanding of their theology. What is it that makes them tick? How do they know that they're getting to heaven? So I start talking to him. And I said, he was rabbling on, babbling on about all these points of what he had heard. And I said, have you ever read the Koran? He says, no, I've never read the Koran. I said, uh, then how do you know what you're saying is true? He said, well, I've got a grandfather that told me about the Muslim faith. And ever since I was a little boy, I put my trust in that, and as far as I know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be saved one day. We got talking about what his view is of Jesus Christ, and I said, let me ask you something. I said, uh, where is Muhammad's grave? He said, well, I don't know. I said, is his bones still in there? He says, well, yeah. I said, did he ever raise himself from the dead? He said, no, he never raised himself from the dead. I said, could you think of anybody that raised himself from the dead, from the Bible? He says, Jesus Christ. I said, yep, that's it right there. I said, there is only one person in John chapter 10 tells us that, doesn't it? It was brought up last week. He said, Jesus said, I have power not only to lay down my life, but to what? 
to raise it up again. I said, whoever did that? I said, Jesus Christ, don't you think he has power over sin in the grave? He said, yeah. I said, wouldn't you want to be saved and be a Christian and have that same confidence that the Bible says? Oh, but I can't. Because... And he went on about the Muslims. And I said, you've got one thing hanging over your head. You've got one thing to look forward to, and that is death in hell. You better escape while you can. But for the Christian, those old ways are gone, aren't they? You don't have that hanging over you do, anymore, do you? Isn't that something to be encouraged about tonight? I mean, you don't have to worry about what has happened in the past. Your sin, Jesus Christ has laid it under the blood. But that's the first thing, the death penalty. And, and then secondly, the domination by Satan. Acts chapter 26. Turn over there. Acts chapter 26. The old ways have passed away. Verse 18, Paul's writing, standing before Agrippa, and he says in verse 18, uh, let's start in verse 17, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Notice that phrase, the power of Satan Unto God. What kind of power does Satan have in our society today? I mean, you see it every day. You rub shoulders with the people at work. You hear it from the filthy mouth people, not only in the military, but everywhere you're at. You see the corruption that is everywhere. And sometimes for the Christian, I don't know about you, but it just it wears on you and you get so tired of it. Um, one sister was saying tonight about having to babysit someone in the military. Well, we all know we've had to do that a time or two. If you've been in the army or military any length of time. But the corruption that's going on, I can count out of 35 people that are assigned to my unit, I know four of them are up for either jail offenses, major criminal action. Just years ago, maybe I just was oblivious to it. I didn't see it, you know, when I was coming up. But now when, you, you know, you're in a little bit of leadership, you, you're aware of all the crazy things that goes on. But you're more aware of the fact of how the devil has a stranglehold on so many people. So many people. Whether it's the one that Pastor Harvey mentions about the, the, was it the person in black or something that lives next door and plays the wicked music. Or the people that are involved in the occult. And the, the Lord knows the rock music is all involved with the occult. But I got thinking about it when I was preparing for this message that 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, how, how it says that the God of this world hath done something. It says he hath blinded the minds of them that they will not believe. The God of this world hath blinded the minds. You know, you can reason with someone until you're blue in the face about being saved, but unless the Spirit of God is convicting them. Have you seen that? To unless God is all over them. You know, because God is big. He can, he, can, he can convict anybody, but unless the heart is tender and, 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 and uh, worked, then you don't see him getting saved, but you see him being blinded. One of the big, biggest things we see in our society that blinds the hearts and the minds of people is this thing of alcohol. Um, you look at uh, the military. Every event that you go to, brother, you've got alcohol there. Just count on it. Just about, unless it's before COB, 16, 1700 hours, you got alcohol. And that was a big struggle for me because I said, you know, I want to be faithful and loyal to my commander. I want to be loyal to my unit and I want to do all of this. But I had to one day stand up and make a stand. I had to say, you know, I will attend the activities where there is no alcohol. And if there's any question, now I have to put my hand up and say, oh, sorry, count Julian out. Because here I am, I've got to take a stand not only for myself, but who else? 
I got eight other people looking at me saying, Dad, you know, what are you doing? Okay, you say this alcohol stuff is bad, but if I say, well, you know, I just go to one of these activities, then I have to show them the right way. I was stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky one time, and the post sergeant major, he comes up, and he's the big guy, you know, sergeant majors, they get all the power in the army. And he put out this policy. That was back in the day when they come up with this so-called zero tolerance for alcohol. That is that if alcohol is involved and it's an incident and it's abuse, we are going to just wipe it out and you're going to get maximum punishment. So this post-star major, he makes this big declaration on Fort Campbell. We have this big meeting and he says, all right, that's it. No more mercy on alcohol-related offenses. Monday morning, I talk with one of the NPs. He's a friend of mine. He says, Guess who we picked up Saturday night? Don't even have to say it, do I? Don't you know that the post commander says, now, Sergeant Major, you just said no tolerance. And the other part of his his statement was that within two weeks, some senior NCO or some officer, whoever violates this policy, they'll be out of the Army. Inside of ten days, that Sergeant Major was out of the Army. Finally, there was some righteousness. But here was a man that is consumed by alcohol. Everywhere you go in an army post today, there's alcohol. You go to a class six store, a shopette, you go to a PX, you go to a commissary, you go to wherever you want to go, and there is alcohol over the place. You can't even buy something anywhere today without seeing alcohol. But one of the uh, disease control centers in the United States ran by the government said this statement, said 35 out of every 36 alcoholics die of liver disease. 35 out of every... 36. So the devil has taken alcohol. And some can say, you know, if I just drink a little bit, it's okay. You know, I'm just a social drinker. And I'm just going to do it in moderation. Well, what you do in moderation, your kids are going to take all the way to the fullest extreme. And pretty soon the alcohol is going to take you down. How about abortion today? A domination by Satan. Today we've called murder abortion. We want to paint it and we want to say it's that's just a Planned Parenthood thing. But abortion today is still murder. The Bible says that thou shalt not murder. Maybe we'll get a president that will come in and start instituting some laws and some local leaders. I don't know if you listen to them on the radio. You catch what their politics are. You hear what they say. Well, I'm a moderate. That means that they're for abortion. Well, I'm conservative conservative in the money, but I'm kind of a little bit socially liberal. Well, that means that they're for abortion. The Bible says that God, in Psalm chapter 139, in the womb, he fashions the baby. Go do an ultrasound sometime and take a look at that pretty little picture, that little heart going boop, 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 And tell me that that's not a baby. Tell me that that is something that's just a fetus that can be aborted. And then what about the things that are going on in our society today in reference to Satan's control about cartoons? Cartoons. You mean Satan has a control factor in this area of cartoons? How about Harry Potter? Anybody heard of Harry Potter lately? Boy, that's all you hear of and that's all you see going on today. I've listened to the talk shows on the radio and I, on the way to work, I'm hearing what's going on. and They say, oh, it's, it's okay. It's, it's not that bad. Why? It's just a form of entertainment. It's just something that you can, you know, your kids are just experimenting with a little bit of entertainment. But I heard one guy finally come on and he said this. He said, I would not have my kid, and this was a wicked, I think, uh, ungodly man that said it, but he had enough common sense. 
He said, you know, I would never put my kids in front of something like that because if you look in the movie, and evidently he watched the movie. I haven't seen it myself, have you? No, no you've seen it, right? But he says, I haven't I've looked at this and I said, man, if I put my kid before this, then all of a sudden they're going to become some warlock or some uh, you know, witch or something like that. And he had enough smarts. You put your kid before the tavern and you let him walk in front of the tavern and the bar every day, every year, all his life, what's going to happen? He's going to get caught up with the alcohol. You put your kids in front of whatever vice or evil thing that's out in this world today, and pretty soon they're going to be influenced by it. And this Harry Potter stuff has taken the world by storm. It said that over $90 million, I guess, was made in the first week of showing a movie. Man, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of domination. That's a lot of control Satan has. That's just one more thing that the Christians have to be aware of, that we've got to say, okay, that's another thing I've got to tighten up in my family. And it may be that you're having your kids watching some cartoons, or it may be that you have, your kids have some book in the house, some book in the house that could control what your kids think and what your kids do. But another thing is uh, music, and we'll talk about that later on, but then the third thing of the old ways that are gone for the Christian is Ephesians 4 and verse 18. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. It says, Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Alienated. Someone that is totally distanced from God. I mean, aren't we all created in God's image? Aren't we all just children of God? Isn't that what society wants to tell you today? Why, you're just a, you're a good person. God would never send anybody to hell. Well, we have Bible for that, like Pastor Harvey says. It's all over the Bible. The Bible says here that we are alienated from God. The Christian, in his past, can look back and see that there was a great gulf fixed. One day, you were serving the devil. You were serving your natural inclinations. You were serving that which in life was taking you to the pit of hell. God saved you, turned you around the other way, and now you're headed towards God. But in between, there was a great gulf fix. Luke chapter 16 and verse 26 says that there's a great gulf fix, that when uh, the rich man was talking to uh, Lazarus there, he said, there, one from my place cannot come down to where you're at. One from where you were at cannot come up to where we're at. There's a great gulf fix, and God has said it that way. And it is a real lake of fire. I believe this is a thing, too, that the average person in the world never even considers. I think they have that fear back in the back of their mind. They have something, something in there that is telling them, what is going to happen when I die? What is it? They're afraid, aren't they? I mean, there's something there in the back of their mind or their heart that just sometimes they may lay awake at night. I used my wife as an illustration. You said it was okay, right? She told me it was okay. Once upon a time... She thought she was saved. She thought she was born again. And uh, attending different churches, sometimes you get different doctrines. You get things that you know, go away from the truth, that kind of sidestep the truth, that kind of looks like the truth, but it's not really the truth. And one of the things in her background that wasn't really the truth was the fact that if she was going to die, she would go to hell, and, and, it need, and she needed Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only, not baptism included, Right? Not any type of good works included. No slinging these beads all over the place like the Roman Catholic Church tries to teach and all this other stuff that they got. But one day she got a hold of that fact and she said, you mean if I was to die, I'm going to go to hell if I'm not saved? 
she was kind of doing that hypothetical thing, you know, somebody talking about themselves, but they're not trying to talk about themselves because they're afraid what you might think about them. And she got talking about it, and I says, yeah, I says, the Bible's clear. I says, you die, you don't have Christ, you go to hell. It's plain and simple. She started thinking about it. And lay awake, it was at nighttime, I think it was. We had just come back from church. She said, I never knew that. I never really trusted in Christ. I've never really repented, repented of my sins like that. And what happened? She just That night, she's right there at the bed. She said, I need to get saved. I said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> so she did it, you know, and she got saved. But it comes a point in all of our life that we have to realize that that lake of fire is real. Hell is real. Back in World War II, they uh, launched the first atomic bomb. They started seeing the almighty power of man, so to speak. And when they got this first atomic bomb, they saw that the initial flash when they launched it spawned a succession of calamities. First came the heat. It lasted only an instant, but it was so intense that it melted roof tiles. It fused the quartz crystals in granite blocks. It charred the exposed sides of telephone, telephone poles for almost two miles away. It incinerated nearby human beings so thoroughly that nothing remained except their shadows that were burned into the asphalt pavements. Bare skin was burned up to two and a half miles away. And people are afraid of the atomic bombs. People ask the questions today, what about the nuclear weapons? And I got something else tougher, more important for them to think about. What about God's hell that he has created? Until they get a hold of that fact and realize, i got to escape. It's like Jonathan Edwards said in his great sermon hundreds of years ago that God takes mankind and dangles them over the pits of hell like with a spider web. And until they see this, that there is a great God out there that is willing to do that and ready to do that, they'll never get saved. But thank God that it's all beyond us now. That's the first half of the message and the truth and the sermon. But the second half of it is, is this fact, that when you ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior, the old ways are gone. The old fears the old question marks in the back of the mind, the things that you used to struggle with when you had that question about getting assurance of your salvation, the things that you realized that was bothering you. And once you committed that to Christ and you gave yourself as a helpless, hopeless, hell-bound sinner and you said, Dear Lord, here I am. I'm not much of nothing, but will you save me? And you come out just like the thief on the cross. What did he say? Lord, remember me in paradise. What about the five-step Romans road salvation? It was in the heart, wasn't it? He knew, he knew he was nothing, and he got saved. Now, what happens when the Christian, when someone gets saved? Well, then we see the new ways. The old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. And then Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God not of works lest any man should boast John 3:16 for God so loved the world come on kids say it with me for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life i was actually talking to my kids but that's okay i don't mind we all saying it together and then Romans 10:9 10, 10 and 13 it says that with the heart or excuse me that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the lord jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, then, just a little paraphrase, and only then, 
thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a promise from God. Something that you never have to question. You know, did God really mean it? No, he meant it because he shows it and he proves it every day. When God, when God saves you, he establishes some new ways in your life. Believe it or not. You say, well, I really don't know if I feel like a Christian today. Well, a lot of times we don't. You get up on Monday morning and what do you feel like? You get out of the field and what do you feel like? You go to the range, you come back at 2 o'clock in the morning and then you go to work a few hours later. What do you feel like? You don't feel like a Christian all the time. But we have the promises of the Word of God that we can say, thank God I'm saved and I don't have to worry about what anybody else says. All I have to concern myself is, what happened? Am I the one that prayed to God? Yes, I prayed to God. Did I realize a sinner? Yes, I realized a sinner. Did I repent of my sins? I repented of my sins. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I'm just amazed over and over how we see people who thought they were saved weren't saved. And then years down the road, thank God that they get saved. But the first thing that gets changed in your new ways is a new will. Acts chapter 9. Look over there. Acts chapter 9, verse 6. Acts chapter 9 and verse 6. You know the story here. If you've been saved a length of time at all, you know about Paul's conversion. It says here that in verse 6, uh, Paul has a meeting with his maker. The great God from eternity comes down and arrests Paul's soul, so to speak, and knocks him off of his animal, whether it was a donkey, a horse, or a mule, or whatever it was. And all of a sudden, Paul finds himself looking straight up to God. And he says something there. What does he say? He says in verse 6, uh, And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And then the Lord said unto him exactly what he wanted him to do. And ever since then, Paul's been pretty much doing everything God wanted him to do. But look at that word there after the word Lord. What does it say? It says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The first thing that gets changed when you become a Christian is your will, your desire. You get a desire to start serving God. Does that mean that you are now perfectly sanctified? No, we know this. That when you get saved, you're on the road to sanctification. You are set apart in the heavenlies. You are sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. You're in. You're just as good in heaven as if you were already there. But there's a thing that happens along the way, and you get sanctified. But the first thing that changes is your will. You have a new desire. Romans 7.22 says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. You know, a lot of times when you're reading your Bible, and sometimes we have to do this out of just simple obedience. We know that daily we should do what? Pick up the Bible and just, just start reading it. Read it and keep reading it and keep reading it. Well, Brother Julian, I didn't get anything out of my devotions this morning. Well, there are some days I don't get anything out of my devotion. There's days where you may go two, three days until you feel that you got your blessing, if you know what I mean, and where you're picked up and encouraged by God and maybe a brother. You're just praying for someone to come along one day. I remember I was... Uh, on my way over to Third Corps headquarters, and I was praying. I said, Lord, I need an escort in the big, big general's building here. I had to go in and do some business, and I didn't have my little uh, badge. And uh, I started praying and praying, and I said, Lord, I need someone to escort me. And lo and behold, who was standing at the stairs right in front of me it was this guy right here. 
I said, wow, God still answers prayer. And so that day, I didn't get a thing out of my devotions, but you know what? I just submitted myself to the Lord, and I kept in prayer all throughout that morning, and God answered the prayer, so it works. But God will give you a new will. You delight in the law of God after the inward man. See, it's, a, it's an exercise. It's a, it's a simple test of obedience. Day in and day out, you're getting in the Bible. Day in and day out, you're praying. You're doing the things that you know God wants you to do. And that's the new will. Then secondly, our new ways is a new walk. Colossians 2.6 says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. Now, how do we walk in Him? How in the world are we going to walk in Jesus Christ? Well, 1 John chapter 1 tells us about this. Flip over there. 1 John chapter 1. When you get saved, you have a new walk. You begin walking like a Christian. Or at least you should. 1 John chapter 1. <clears throat> Verses 6 and 7 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. So it says here in 1 John that we begin a new walk as a Christian, don't we? I remember when uh, one of the kids were learning to walk. It's funny how you remember things about your kids when they start off. You know, this one talked early, this one. When you guys as many as I got, you, you, you kind of they kind of get blurred up, you know. You don't remember exactly which one. But I remember one of them was uh, learning to walk, and, and we were at uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. That's where it was. We were at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and uh, we had these big, big staircase up into this uh, uh, house that we lived in. And we'd always tell them, now be careful. You know, you get the gates and you put them across the front because you don't want to fall down. Big, big problems at the bottom of the staircase. And you would tell them to be careful. Watch out where you're walking. Be careful. You know, don't, don't. And pretty soon you just had to take your hands back and you had to say, okay, they're going to fall. They're going to fall. I know some of the younger parents may not. Do we have any younger parents in here? I don't think so. But uh, sometimes you don't want to think that way. But, you know, the kids do. They have to take those steps sometimes, right? And make their falls and have the bruises and, and the owies that come as a result of hitting the staircase and rolling down headfirst. But it's just like the Christian. You learn to walk in Christ. You're not just setting a perfect sterling example day one when you get saved, right? Man, some of us, it took us a long time to get where we're at. I mean, I, I just see, I've been saved 20 years now. And uh, I, I look back and I said, I thought I learned that one. Years ago, but here I am doing that same stupid thing again. And praying over and over, God delivered me that. But that's all part of the Christian walk. You've got to develop those tasks, those fundamentals, those principles of the Christian faith. And how do you do that? You do that by fellowship. Fellowship. What is fellowship? First John chapter 1 tells you all about it. It says basically that it's two or more people walking in the same direction with the same goals. You know, that's why you can't have fellowship with the world tonight. You can't do it. You can't go out there and drink with the buddies on Friday night and get spiritual Saturday morning and go soul winning. It just doesn't work. You can't go out tonight after you get done here and maybe even go to McDonald's for the afterglow and then, and then go out and do the wrong thing and listen to the rock music. Why not? Because it's not compatible. It's not the Christian thing to do. It's not what God the Holy Spirit is telling you in your heart and in your mind that you're supposed to be doing. 
God will speak to you about that. If He doesn't speak to you, then you need to check to see if you are a saved, born-again child of God. But when we walk in the Lord, we learn that we walk in Him because we have fellowship. Not just with the saved believers. Man, what a blessing it is here, right, to have all these people. At first it seemed like I, I sit back there and I said, man, I'm getting ready to preach tonight. And, and uh, Brother Hammonds is saying, we just got a few people here. And I started thinking, well, there's only about 15. And I got up here and I looked. And I said, wow, we got a lot of people here. But, you know, you can have fellowship with all the people that are here. But what the Scripture is really getting to right here is that your fellowship first and foremost is with Jesus Christ himself. I hope you can get a hold of that tonight and realize that. Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. See, when we fellowship with others, we're boosted up in the faith, right? So if the next time you talk with a fellow Christian and that fellow Christian's not boosting you up in the faith, you need to ask yourself the real smart question and say, hmm, should I be fellowshipping that closely with that person that's not boosting me up in the faith? That's just Julian theology. That just kind of makes sense. So what should we should do? I should go to someone that does boost, us, boost me up in the faith. I go to, and I can name name after name after name after name here in the congregation of people that I know have personally encouraged me because of their walk, because of their example of prayer, because of their example of faithfulness or fatherhood or whatever it may be. But that fellowship boosts us in the faith. But more than that, our fellowship needs to be with Jesus Christ. So Jesus wants us to walk in Him. He says it here, when we get saved, we get a new will, we get a new walk. But not only do we walk in Him, but Ephesians 2.10 tells us something else that we do with our walk. It says that we walk in good works. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So you've got to ask yourself the question tonight, what am I doing that is a good work for Jesus Christ? It's a good question. Well, I do this, and I do that, and I do that. You may be able to list six, seven, eight, some of you more than that that you do here in the church. But I've been faithful all these years, Brother Julian. I've been doing this. And I, okay, that's good. But it says, for we are created, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The picture there is a construction contractor. He sets up a, a building plan, and what does he have to do? He has to check everything, everything from A to Z, from electrical to plumbing, Everything from A to Z. He has to ensure that before he gets ready to build, he has to plan everything out perfectly. Unlike, unlike what I did when I got ready to set up my satellite. You know, that's not the way you do it. I learned and, and uh, Brother uh, Bluehorn squared me away and ensured I knew what to do in setting up my satellite. But the, the thought here is a construction contractor making improvements as the building is going up. We are his workmanship. We are his building in progress to give glory to God. Because what happens when the building is up? You know, people come around to buildings and they, they look over there and they ask the dumb question. They come up to the guy and they say, the, well, I see you're building a new building here. He says, yeah, we don't put up any old buildings. We just put up new ones. And they get up there and they look at this, but they don't care about the construction project along the way. What do they want to see? The end product. They want to see what that big, huge building looks like, that church, that cathedral, that mosque. Well, let's not talk about that. Some nice, beautiful building, they want to see the final end result. And what is the end result? The end result gives glory to the maker, the architect. When the, the total building is completed and project, you know, we look at it in our lives and we say, you know, I got a lot of problems, I got a lot of kinks I'm working out, I, I'm just having a terrible time. Yeah, but you're not finished yet, you know. 
I know what I used to do, and I hadn't been too long ago either. I, I'd, I'd put that feeling in my heart and in my mind. It wasn't from the Lord. It was from the devil that I'm just terrible. I keep having the same thing just eating at me. And I couldn't get peace about it. It was like, it was like a, a month or so period. And I finally had to commit it to the Lord, and the thing called faith came in. I said, Lord, this is the problem I'm having, and I, I don't know how to do it. Dear God, I just can't solve this problem. Fill in the blank. And I said, Lord, I can't take care of it, but I know you can. I'm going to drop it off with you, and I'm done with it. And Lord, if it keeps plaguing me the rest of my life, okay. But I'm going to do the best I can, and by faith, for without faith it is impossible to please Him, right? Hebrews chapter 11. Lord, I'm by faith, I'm going to believe that you're going to help me through that situation, and I'm just going to give it to you. And don't you know, in a matter of a day or two, it was gone? Why? Because I learned to just give it up to the Lord, to fellowship in Him, to walk in good works. What are the good works that you need to do? What is it God is leading on your heart to do in this church right now, today, this week, this month? The thing that you've been leaving out. The thing that you've been not giving full effort to. That area in your life and in your ministry. You say, well, I'm not a minister. I'm not a preacher. Okay. But the Bible says that we're all ministers. What's the word minister mean in the Bible? It means that you're a what? High and mighty, I'm somebody. You know, sticking your neck out there. What's a minister? A minister is someone that is a servant. Someone that decides to help out. Serve. Do what needs to be done. You know, and there's a few in here I'm looking at right now that they're always doing something. You know, <laughs> busy bee, does that ring a bell? I mean, always about doing something. Picking up, cleaning up, doing this, doing that. At the door, visiting, you know, usher, uh, Whatever. I mean, there's folks that are constantly busy. But you got to find that area. What is your niche? What is your part in this church and the church ministry? So we get a new walk. Then we get a new word. Colossians 3.16. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to who? To the Lord. To the Lord. So we get a new word. <clears throat> the word richly in that verse, it's got a great meaning to it. It says, let the word of Christ dwell on you richly. You know what that means? It means extravagantly. It means laying it on so thick. You know, like when you ice a cake and you put that, all that thick icing on there? You just lay it on so thick and you just pour it on and you put a bowl of ice cream with it and you just, you know, whether it's a birthday cake or whatever it is, you're, you're just doing everything, you know, or, or dad's got a birthday coming up and you just go all the way out. Well, Dad just had a birthday back in September. But next year, Dad's going to have a birthday. And then, you know, you just go all out to do everything you can for whoever that person is that you love. And you just do it so much and so well. And you check all the blocks and you spare no expense. And you come to the point you say, that person is just such a blessing. I love this individual so much. I'm going to do everything I can. That's what he's talking about here. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you so much that it is so thick, that it is on so much that it just oozes. And it's just all over. So when you're talking in the morning, one of the first words out of your mouth naturally, as this type of person is, is the Lord. What great things the Lord hath done for us. And when you're outside at night, and this, this was great last night. I was looking, it must have been about midnight. I was looking up all the stars. You know, when the lights are down in the local community area and you can see the stars out, and then God just starts bringing in verses in your mind. I was thinking about how in... Uh, Psalm 19, it says, Let, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day other speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. 
And I got thinking about that, and I said, man, look at the power that is out here in the universe tonight. I said, the God who is holding all those little stars, millions of them, in their proper constellation, is the same God that has saved me. <laughs> I got a hold of that last night, and it just I was just amazed. I said, God, you mean? And he says, yeah. And we got talking for a while. And we had a great conversation. It was good. But it says here that the person that is saved by God's grace lets the word of Christ dwell in them, lives in them, tabernacle, just setting up a tent right there, richly, extravagantly. It talks about three things in that. First of all, your speech. Your speech betrays you. You've heard that before? Well, as a Christian, your speech is to be always with what? Always with grace, seasoned with salt. You're a Christian that is focused on the Word of God, that the Word of God comes forth. And you see it. You know, it's fun watching people come into church. I know none of you all do this. But I enjoy watching folks come in. And I, I, I like seeing, you know, you, you see some of them, they get a smile on their face, and others go frown, you know, kind of having a hard day. And uh, I had a preacher friend of mine one time, he says, you know, even if you're having a bad day, just come in with a smile on your face and then everything else will be just work out just fine. And everybody think you're spiritual and you're having a great day. And if everybody does that, then what happens? It gets contagious, right? And everybody's got a smile on and everything's going good. And, and you know and I know we all got our problems and our concerns and our worries and our family members. And, but, you know, the Bible says that our speech still has to be that which edifies the Christians, that which honors God. Had a situation uh, about a week ago. I was involved with a uh, what we call, and all of y'all know, a, a change of command ceremony. I got uh, I got picked to be the narrator. You could read all this crazy stuff, you know, the army traditions and blah 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 blah. blah. And I got re- we were reviewing that, and we had our practice, and uh, I just was getting to the point, and uh, the colonel for the command ceremony he says, now who's going to give the prayer? I said, oh. Mr. Julian, he'll give it, he'll give it, he'll give it, he'll give it, Mr. Julian. So three or four of them say, yeah, get Chief, he'll do it. They call, they call me Chief. They said, get uh, Mr. Julian, he'll do it. I said, do what? And they said, we need somebody to pray. I said, okay, I'll pray. And then the, the colonel comes over to me and he says, now, remember, in the army, we have to be careful that we don't offend other people of other faiths. Make sure, and I could not believe the next words out of his mouth. He says, make sure you don't use the name Jesus Christ in your prayer. So it set me back a bit, and I said, uh, Sir, I can't do that. <laughs> I said, I'm a Christian. And he says, Well, I am too. I said, That's great, sir. But I said, I'm a Christian, saved by God's grace. I can't deny the Lord like that. You're asking me. He did say, Oh, no, just say a generic prayer, Chief. I said, Sir, unless I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, it's worthless. It's not going anywhere. It's, it's a vain prayer. And don't you know, for the next two days, they had to go hunting around for someone that could find, some, to find someone that would pray without the name of Jesus. Lo and behold, I started seeing all these Christians popping out of the woodwork. I didn't know there was that many of them around. Or I can't pray without saying Jesus too. Yeah, me too. Pretty soon, there's seven or eight people, man. We were getting ready to take it by storm. And finally, they found this individual that, that did it. But that was such a blessing that there were others around. And little did you know that they were, well, called themselves Christians. But they stood up for the Lord and were saying, no, I can't, I can't uh, pray unless it's in the name of Christ. So our speech betrays us, and our speech tells what flows out from our heart. 
not only about this new word as our speech, but then our song, Psalm 40, 147, verse 1. It says, Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God. Do you believe that? Is it good to sing praises unto our God? Well, I got to go to church. I, you know, it's time to pray, or it's time to sing. Time to get up in the choir. You know, we'll get up into the choir. And, and uh, I enjoy watching the folks in the choir. Do y'all watch the folks in the choir when they get up there? It's comical sometimes. I have a good time. And I'll sit there and I'll be watching what goes on. And some of them, you know, they'll be talking. Pastor Harvey's up here. And my kids said the other day, you know what they said? Don't tell anybody. But they said, those people should not be talking while Pastor Harvey is speaking. I said, woo! <laughs> I said, well, that's good. That's good. I said, why is that? And they said, well, we got to show respect to the pastor. Right? Got it? So I learned that one. I said, okay, I better keep my mouth shut when the pastor's up there talking or talking up here. But beside that, our praise is to the Lord. The Bible says, for his good to sing praises unto our God. We got a hold of this one of the weeks in our, in our uh, what's it called? Sunday school class. We were over there talking about how that as Christians, God created us for one reason. And that is to give glory unto him. The great architect of the universe who manufactures everything, who designed you and me, he created you and me for one specific purpose, and that is to give glory to him. Now, how does that happen? That happens through what we do, what we say, how we pray, all those things. But that's one of the main reasons why we're created is to give praise unto the, to the Lord. And I was asking my kids one time, I said, you know, how do you praise the Lord? They thought about it for a minute. They said, well... We should praise the Lord. I said, yeah, I know we should praise the Lord. And then we went all around the bush and back talking about praising the Lord. I said, go ahead, do it. Just praise the Lord in front of me. I dare you. you know, Just go ahead and do it. And finally they just said, praise the Lord. I said, hey, that's good. That's good. How else can you praise the Lord? Thank you, Lord. And they just said, thank you, Lord. Okay, that's good. Thank you, Lord, and praise the Lord. What else can you do to praise the Lord? Well, we should. I said, don't tell me we should. Praise the Lord. Do it. And we kept going around about that. I think it was me and the two boys. I said, when we praise the Lord, we're letting the word of Christ flow out of us and give glory back up to God. Now, do that at work sometimes. See what they say. You'd be out there at work and all of a sudden you're, you're, you're talking and everybody's having a hard day. Just all of a sudden just shout it out. Praise the Lord and see what happens. I, I dare you to do it because you know what? They'll think you're crazy. So if you're willing to be thought that way, go ahead and do it. The Bible says that we should praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God. Now it says, praise the Lord. Do it with your mouth. Let the word of Christ flow out of you. Let it be richly, extravagantly laid on thick. But what about in your singing? There's two things in that verse. You know? Psalm 147, 1, it's still in the Bible. It says, praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God. So first you praise the Lord, you do it through how? Your mouth, right? Then the second way is through your singing. This is something else. I'll watch my kids and I'll pick on them every once in a while. But that's okay, they're used to it. I'll be watching to see if they're singing. You know, you, I know you all do the same thing. You watch them see Johnny, you're not singing. Give him the elbow. And you're checking to see if they're singing. I get my ear down close to them and I say, I can't hear you sing too loud. And Daddy, I'm singing. I said, no, you're not. Sing, man. Sing out there. And I don't have the best voice, and I try to sing. But, you know, when you get changed by the Lord, and you realize what has happened to you, and you get a hold of that fact that you're not going to hell no more, 
and you've got all of eternity ahead, and you've got fellowship with God forever, yeah, pretty soon that song just comes out. Song just comes out. There was a man that uh, in a church I, I had preached at in uh, Germany for a while, and uh, he had uh, he had a lot of troubles. He he was uh, he was a drug addict, and uh, his daughter. I think it was his daughter was taken away from him because he, you know, with the drug addiction and whatnot. And we got a good opportunity to minister to him, and he would come forward every single, and just he was just a broken man, just, you know, just just broken completely. And uh, he came to one time and he says, "How, he said, how do I get victory over what I'm doing wrong? Said, how do I take care of the?" I mean, labeled all these sins. I said, "Man, I don't know if I want to hear all that." But he began telling me all this stuff, and I. I just took him to Romans 6, Romans chapter 6. And I said, if you'll go through and you memorize Romans chapter 6, you will get the victory that you need over all those laundry lists of sins. He started getting into Romans chapter 6, and don't you know, it worked. <laughs> Imagine that, just getting into the Bible, memorize certain key scriptures, and fortifying your, your Christian life. Pretty soon, the guy who would never hardly sing, man, he started singing like a bird. Ooh, and he had a good voice too. And he could sing, and pretty soon God was all over him, and he was changed. Romans chapter 6 saved the day. But he had a song for the Lord, and that's what happens to us. Even in our song services, man, we ought to be singing. Uh, Pastor Hammonds shouldn't even be able to be heard up here. Now, maybe we should shut the microphone off or something next time. I don't know. But we shouldn't even be hearing him above us. We ought to be kill, uh, uh, kicking out all of the songs right back at him, and our voices should just drown him out. And we should do that. And we're, when those that are in the choir, they ought to be singing and not, and I, you know, I'm, I'm tempted at this too sometimes. We shouldn't be thinking about what people think about us while we're in the choir. You know, sometimes we've got to make sure we're dressed just right and everything's dressed right, dressed and everything. We've got to forget about that. We have to realize that we're singing praise unto one person and one only, and that's Jesus Christ, the one who saved us and gave himself for us. Psalm 40, verse 3, And he hath put a new song in, our, in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. Now, I don't think soul winning, I mean, uh, singing is necessarily a, necessarily a soul winning tool. You know, should we go out downtown and just start singing and have a choir, take it down to, you know, all the, the bad places around town? Maybe not, but what happens as a result of that? When you start singing, your praise comes out and it's just going out to the world. What happens then? We become more dynamic Christians. We become that which the scripture tells us that we're supposed to become. And then the third thing about this new word is not only is there new speech, song, but then the scripture. The scripture is new to us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, what does it say? For the word of God is quick and powerful. And then you could go on and quote the rest of the verse. Many of you know it. For the word of God is quick and powerful. Um, it means it's living, it's energetic, it's effectual, it's powerful, it's potential. It makes things happen, right? You hear that in your job sometimes? You just need to go in there and make it happen. I had a commander who used to tell me that all the time. He didn't have a clue about what my job was. He didn't know a thing, but he told me, he said, Chief, you just need to make it happen. I said, okay, I'll just go make it happen. He come back to me and said, did you do it? I said, yep, I made it happen. Now, he didn't know what in the world I did, but I did it and I made it happen. But you know what? That's what the scripture does. The scripture will make things happen for you that you cannot make happen yourself. You've got that job that you're looking for, the primo job, the best job, the job that pays the most money so you don't have to work Saturday and Sunday. You don't have to work those crazy swing shifts and all that other stuff. 
and you're scheming, you're planning, you're putting together a big package for the Lord, and you offer it to the Lord, and you say, here you go, Lord, this is what I think is your will for my life. This will work, God. You tell the Lord that. And then he comes back to you and he says, mm-mm. Uh, I learned this one time in, uh, in reference to prayer. We learned it through the Scripture, how that the scripture, scripture is effective. It's so effective in our lives. The only problem is that we don't use it. We just don't use it. Not like it's there for. The most untapped resource that we have right now is the Holy Bible. We say, I love the King James Version. Amen, I do too. What are we doing about it? Um, one of the scriptures that come out of our, our precious King James Version is in Luke chapter 6. And it's a great scripture verse that talks about this new word. It says, uh, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself, or himself, maketh intercession for us with what? With groanings which cannot be uttered. You're praying for something right now. you got a prayer request. And you try to package it up, right? You're planning, you're scheming, you're, you're checking the block, you want to make sure everything is just right. And you put that prayer request to the Lord, and the Lord says, no. No, that's not going to work. So God the Holy Spirit takes that prayer, and he crafts that prayer, and he redefines that prayer, and he turns it up inside out, upside down, and he takes it up to God the Father. And God the Father, based on Luke 6.26 there, takes a look at that, and the Holy Spirit tells God the Father, you know, here's what the, here's what the Julians are really needing in their life. Why, they need a couple more trials. They need some more hard times. Instead of being up on the mountaintop for the next week or so, we're going to put them down in the valley, right? That's where all the good fruit grows. That's where, all the, that's where everything's going on. That's where the hard times are. And so what Brother Julian really means by that prayer, God the Father, is this. He really wants two more hard trials to where he has to stay up at night and pray. And then he really wants awakening up early in the morning because the need is so great and so heavy that it just wakes him up 30 minutes, an hour before the alarm clock. <laughs> some of you have been there. I see some of the faces. And then pretty soon, you're, pretty soon uh, that day and that week, he'll be such at the point where in his spiritual life he will say, Okay, Lord, I give up. I'll do it your way. That's what he means. So God the Father says, okay, Holy Spirit, take it back to God the Son. God the Son stamps it approved because God the Son is the energizer. He is the one, the active uh, person of the, of the Trinity. And he sends it with God the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit sends it down on earth. And Brother Julian's miserable for about two days, <laughs> going through a hard time and, and, and waking up. And how are we going to deal with this? And well, what are we going to do about that? And then all of a sudden, at the end of the week, maybe Wednesday afternoon, Thursday, when all the uh, soldiers and sergeants' time and all the warrants get to go uh, hide in their office and, and think about what, what they're doing that way. And then the truth comes, and the Scripture comes. And the Scripture comes to life. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. I was thinking about this uh, this week. I had a situation that had come up. And I prayed, Lord, what in the world am I going to do? And I, my head was just banging against the wall. And as I was reading the Bible, I tried to phase out work. You know, 1,700, 1,900, man, you just want to cut it off and forget about it. But sometimes you think about it, don't we? I mean, we just do. It's just natural. 
And I got into it, and I was praying, and I said, now, Lord, bless them, this, 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 this. And I was praying for someone else, and I was praying about this, and praying for my dad, and then all of a sudden, the answer came. And it was a scripture verse that all of a sudden, when I was in prayer, God took that scripture and gave me the answer to the thing at work that I'd been struggling with for the past two to three days. I couldn't figure it out, but God's word is powerful. And God is big, and God can make anything happen. So whatever struggle and situation you're trying to work through in your life, you have to take it back to the book, to the scripture, and you have to say what? Lord, I can't understand it, and Lord, I need your guidance and your help, and God will give you the answer. And then the last thing tonight, the new ways, we said that we get a new will, a new walk, a new word, and then finally, thank Lord, we get a new world to look forward to. John chapter 14, it says, I go, I go and prepare a place for you, and that where I go, there you may come. Because God is preparing a brand new world for us. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, that's us right here, shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. What's the last verse there that it says? Do you know it? Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. If there's nothing else that comforts you tonight, and it would encourage you, then comfort yourself in this fact here. That one day you're going to leave all this mess. You're going to leave the problems and the bills and the taxes and all that other stuff that the, uh, the white man created when he came and saw that the Indians had it all together. But now we're going to go to a new world. We, we find there that in that world there's no more sin. There's no more pain. There's no more sorrow. There's no more heartache. There's no more questions. There's no more death. There's no more burials. There's no more any of the problems we've got to deal with now because we're going up to heaven. One day we'll be encouraged. Possibly the best example of this, what I've been talking about tonight, is the great Apostle Paul. Paul is our, our fine, final example. And tonight in conclusion, that's the time where everybody closes all their Bibles, right? Is that what you say in conclusion? Paul was our greatest example. There in uh, Acts, we see a tremendous man that was on a mission. Anybody that was motivated and, and just pumped and, and, and so focused on what they did in life, it was this guy at that time whose name was Saul. Saul was on the road and he was getting ready to take Christians just like you and me into prison. Well, one day that could happen here. Uh, one day we may have that point where we have to uh, be thrown in jail for our faith. But at that time he was going around trying to find those people that practice the, the faith of this way, like it says in Acts. And Paul that day he got nailed down on the road to Damascus and he was changed. I mean, he was changed. But what happened? Well, take a look at it, just his names. The word Saul means big. The word Paul means what? Little, small. So God took the big shot and knocked him down off of his horse and made a little shot. And you say, well, I can't do this or I can't. Well, that's good. That's exactly where God wants us because he wants to receive all the glory. He doesn't. He can't get the glory from us when we're bragging and boasting in the flesh. What does the Bible say? It says, if we trust in the flesh, we shall fail. But no, the scripture says about Paul that he possibly did more for anyone else by being changed by Jesus Christ than anybody that you read about in the New Testament. Great example of Apostle Paul. Someone that was changed, just like us. You remember the day when you were changed? Remember the day when you were saved? All the old things are passed away. Now all the other things are becoming new. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight we thank you for 
the words. Thank you for the scripture that is so real in our lives. And we just praise you tonight, dear God. We praise you and we, we just exalt you knowing that you've changed us and you've made us a new creature in Christ. We thank you tonight, Lord, that old things have passed away and all are become new. And Lord, guide us now in our Christian walk. Help us to take on those things that we know that we should be doing. And Lord, we thank you for the ministries here. Thank you for the opportunities of service, Lord. Thank you for creating within us a new desire. We just pray tonight, Lord, that you would do that work in our lives. In Jesus' name.